let's get into the word tonight. We're in Revelation, um, continuing on. And um, before I get started, let me just go ahead and pray and we'll get into the word here. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for this time. Lord, I thank you to be back here with uh, my family. And we're just grateful to you for your word, Lord. God, we just pray that it would transform us, God. You'd meet, you always meet us where we're at. But, Lord, you don't leave us there. You transform us. So we pray that if conviction is needed tonight, Lord, we would respond to it. If correction is needed, we would respond, Lord. Lord, if we need encouragement tonight or exhortation, Lord, we just ask that you would do that in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. Let us be renewed and transformed and look more and more like you, Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, um, I'll never forget, I, I think it Elise was about three years old at the time, but my wife and I, it was the first trip we took after having the first baby. So it was kind of a big deal because we actually took a little vacation together. And we went down to, to the Mayan Riviera, which is like a little south of Cancun. We got this great deal through AAA and it was like an all-inclusive hotel and, and uh, airfare and everything. like. It was really cool. So we went down to this this hotel and, and no kids, so it was really kind of like, whoa, you know, we don't have to. Of course, my wife, as soon as we landed, was like, let's call home, make sure she's alive, you know. And I'm like, she's great. You're like, how can you be so insensitive? But uh, we, we went down there and, and we, uh, the first day we got to choose like some excursions we wanted to do. And one of the things that I saw that I thought would be good was zip lining through the jungles in, uh, in uh, the Mayan Riviera area. And I thought, hey, you know, this is good because it's, you never know, it's cheap and it's, it's in Mexico, so you don't know what's going to happen. This is, this is awesome. And, uh, in fact, they give you a break. It's a wooden stick, and that's called the, 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 their Mayan break. <laughs> so, uh, but we went there, and, and in the Mayan Riviera where we were ziplining, we were ziplining over these cenotes. There are these pools because in, in, in – um, the Yucatan Peninsula, there's all these underground rivers and caves. And these pools are crystal clear. I mean, it's amazing that the purity of the water. In fact, once we were done ziplining, we went swimming in the pools, but they, they made a rule that you can't put it on any sunblock. You can't have anything on your, you got to rinse off first before you get into them. So we did all that stuff and we got into the pool and, and they warned us, be careful because it, they're so clear, you'll think things are closer than they are. Uh, and you might try to swim too far and end up getting stuck in a cave or something like that. And sure enough, I love water. Uh, I, I was a water polo player, swimmer. I may not reflect that now, but I was. And I, I, I love swimming. I love going as far as I can underwater. So I, right away, as soon as I get in, I'm like, see you later, honey. <laughs> you know. And I went down. I'm starting to swim to the bottom, and I couldn't get there. I was adjusting my ears and trying to get to the bottom, and I just couldn't get there. It was so deep. But I could see the bottom from the surface, and I was just marveled at the clarity of this water. Tonight as we talk about this fourth church in the book of Revelation, that's the issue we're really dealing with, is an issue of purity. God's church is to be holy. If you remember the first church we looked at, the church in Ephesus, Jesus is confronting them on their love. And we said the church... And remember, the definition of church is those who are born again in Christ are a part of the church. So you, Christian, are to love the Lord Jesus first and foremost. You can have works, you can have theological knowledge, but if you don't love the Lord, you're missing the point. And that's what Jesus told the church in Ephesus. And then, then we looked at the church in Sardis, or sorry, Smyrna, 
And in Smyrna, we saw that the church was, uh, was enduring hardship. And, and we said that the church, the believer, should endure for Christ. That's one of the things we want to learn from that, that we shouldn't run away at the first sign of persecution or tribulation. We should recognize that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, dear Christian. Christ has overcome the world. And then last week in the church of Pergamum, Art brought out the truth that the church needs to hold to God's word faithfully. And we'll see the opposite of, of, of the church of Pergamum in the church of Philadelphia in a couple weeks here. But, but Art shared with us how compromise can come into the church and how we can forget God's word and we need to hold on to God's word. And by the way, Art, thank you. That was a wonderful sermon. I got blessed listening. I got on the plane and started listening to it and what a blessing. And the... the Air flight attendant tried to tell me to turn it off, and I got in a fight. Got kicked. I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> but um, but we've been looking at these churches, and I want to read a, a quick passage from Hebrews before we read the text tonight. At, at the end of Hebrews, the author, who I think is Paul, but you know whoever whoever it is, tells us this. He says, "And have you not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son?" Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those, the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. So the Lord's discipline is actually an act of God's grace and love and mercy for us. It is not an act of hatred. It's not an act of you being a, a, an enemy of him. But when God disciplines us, it's for our own good. In fact, if you keep reading that chapter in Hebrews, one of the things it says is that, that you'll bear fruit. That you'll actually start bearing fruit in him. So as we look at these letters to the churches and as Christ is saying, hey, this is what I see that's doing good, but this is what's got to change. This is where you need to change your course and get back on course. This is an absolute act of his love for the church. And uh, I, I hope you'll see it that way. Tonight we're going to talk about a few issues that may be controversial for you. In fact, it may be something that you don't even want to hear. And I, I hope that you'll bear with me. And also, really, if you're reacting that way to some of the issues or topics we talk about tonight, you seek the Lord. My goal is to represent the truth and the word accurately and speak it truthfully. And then let you deal with it in your heart with the Lord. So I, I just want to let you know that we're going to get into some, some things tonight that may be offensive to you. My goal is not to offend you. My goal is that you'll know Christ more. So let's get into the first chapter here. And to the angel in the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that you, your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, 
who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with me, rule with a rod of iron, and as when earthen pots are broken, I'm sorry, did I skip something? Uh, I think I lost my place. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter to Thyatira, is, it's kind of interesting because it's the longest letter to the churches and it's the smallest town that Jesus is writing to. The church in Thyatira was really not, it wasn't a very notable city. It was originally established by Alexander the Great when he came through Persia and he was conquering everything. And this little city was kind of known for its, some of its commerce and guilds. It was actually the main center where it was dyeing purple wool. That was what Thyatira was known for. In fact, we only read about Thyatira one other time in scriptures, and it's in Acts chapter uh, 9. Uh, oh, let me throw it up here. I've got it right here. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So this is the, the only time we, uh, we hear the word of the city Thyatira in the New Testament. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of a question of whether or not Lydia was one of the people that helped found this church in Thyatira that was one of the first missionaries to Thyatira. Because we don't read of any of the disciples or apostles going there. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't. But we know that Paul, at least, did not go to Thyatira. And uh, so it's very possible that Lydia was one of the first people to bring the gospel to Thyatira. And that's, that was her business, selling purple goods, dyed goods. But this little church in this, this small town has a big problem. We don't want to lose sight of that. It's interesting that Jesus addresses, going back to Revelation 1, that image of Christ. Here he says that the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Both these symbols speak of judgment. I have... Uh, I have this look I can give to my kids. <laughs> and uh, my wife always says, like, you can't do that look, it's scary. But my kids know that, that when they're doing something out of line and I kind of shoot them this look, it's like soul piercing, right? I'm like looking into their soul. Like I know what they're about to do before they do it. And they see that look on my face, they're like, whoa, let's, let's just let's back it down. <laughs> let's step back from this. Like, Dad, you know, let's not escalate this anymore. Because they know that that look means you're in trouble. They know that you're about to do something you're going to get in a lot of trouble for. And, and I kind of think of Jesus Christ with these eyes of fire. It's that, that whole idea that I know how I can look at my kids. And, and Jesus is looking with this, these penetrating eyes of judgment. He's the one who can judge. And he's saying to Thyatira, hey, I see what you do. Don't fear man, fear me. We sometimes have a problem of losing sight of that, don't we? We start to fear man. We start to fear what they're going to think of us. Uh, we, we start to succumb to peer pressure through our cultural pressure, work pressure, high school pressure, junior high pressure, whatever the pressure is. We sometimes start to succumb to that pressure 
because we fear man when the one who we should fear is the one who has the right to judge. In fact, Jesus himself said, don't fear man who can only kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and after killing the body can throw the, throw the soul into hell. That's the one you should fear. And so Jesus is standing there with these penetrating eyes of flame and these feet of burnished bronze, which we talked about in the beginning, that these, uh, obviously also a symbol of judgment. And he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and your latter works exceed the first. This is actually a, kind of a good group. Doesn't it sound that way? They, they, look at that. They, they've got love, faith. Service, patient endurance. Man, it almost sounds like a church I'd want to go to. In fact, their latter works exceed the first. And the word, the word works there is diakonos, which we get our word deacon from. And it just means a service and love. The, the one who's laying down themselves for other people. Sounds like a good place, a good church at first. And Jesus is recognizing, hey, I see these things about you. But like with Many of these churches, there's a compromise happening. They're tolerating something they shouldn't. They're letting go of the word of God and they're focusing more on the doing aspect. They're, they're not so focused on fearing the Lord, loving the Lord. They're focused on the doing. And they're starting to lose sight of these things. And, and so this is what J Jesus says. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. A prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. You tolerate this. Isn't that interesting that Jesus is confronting the whole church on what they're tolerating? Not, in fact, we even see at the end of the letter, there's some who aren't holding to these things. There's some who haven't gotten into the sin or involved in the sin. But the fact is they're tolerating. They're allowing this to go on without ever speaking the truth, without ever confronting these things. Because their toleration of this is causing problems for other believers. They're allowing other believers to be seduced. They're allowing other believers to be slip away. Look at the, the, the things that she's seducing them to do. Practice sexual immorality. Eat food sacrificed to idols. It's interesting that when you think about a church, the last thing you think about is a church getting involved in the practice of sexual immorality or idolatry. It just seems so foreign to the church. But yet here we have a church that has somehow come up with the idea that these things are okay. The term Jezebel, of course, many uh, who haven't even read the Bible have heard that term. It's used in, in um, just a, as a term for a wicked woman. And, of course, it comes from 1 Kings. Ahab, the king of Israel, actually was a wicked king. But, but he actually did more wicked and more reasons to provoke the Lord to judgment than any other king before him. But one of the things he did was marry the king of Sidon's uh, daughter, Jezebel. He married this woman and, and Jezebel just, her whole goal was to take away the worship of God in Israel. She wanted to lead Israel away from that. And of course God rose up Elijah the prophet during this time. And Elijah had many confrontations with Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel tried to hunt down all the prophets of God to put them to death. He, he, I, she was very active in trying to do away with the worship of the Lord God. And, and, and she was successful in seducing Israelites to worship these foreign gods and erect altars, have Ahab erect altars. In fact, this is what God says to Jezebel and Ahab in, in 1 Kings. He says, but I, oh, sorry, um, go to the 1 Kings scripture in chapter 
16, uh, yeah, 21, sorry. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited, 1 Kings 21, 25. Jezebel incited Ahab to do evil, to do more and more evil. And it's, and it's interesting, when Elijah, when the prophet confronts them, one of the things he says is, hey, guess what, you're going to die. God's going to kill you. You're going to not only die, but you're going to rot and the dogs are going to eat you. And Ahab turns and repents. He's like, oh, I don't want to do that. And so God actually gives a little mercy to Ahab, but Jezebel doesn't. Eventually, after Ahab is dead, when Jehu comes in and uh, he shows up, he's talking to Jezebel. She's up in an upper window and he basically says, hey, who's for me? And uh, her eunuchs push her out of the window. Her own people, they're like, hey, we're for you. And they push her out the window. She falls and dies. He tramples over her with a chariot. And then, and then he decides after he goes in, he's like, hey, we should probably bury Jezebel. So they go back out and the dogs had already eaten her. And so God's word proved to be true with Jezebel. That that's exactly what was going to happen. He predicted it. He said it would happen. And it happened. So... Being one of the most wicked queens in all of Israel, um, here we have Jesus referring to this woman who the church is allowing to teach and seduce people to do evil. He calls her Jezebel. This wicked Je You're tolerating this person in the church. And look at what she's doing. She's in, uh, seducing them to practice sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Well, the word is pornea, and of course we get one of our words porn from pornography. We get one of our words from that. But it's, it's not specifically speaking of porn. It's speaking of anything outside of, of a sexual relationship that God has created to be good. Well, what sexual relationship has God created to be good? Well, that's a sexual relationship within marriage. God created sex for marriage, for a husband and a wife to be one, flesh. And, and by the way, God says, that is great. Do it and do it often. That's how God looks at sex in the Bible. In fact, Paul encourages the Corinthian church. He says, hey, you guys shouldn't be breaking away from each other unless it's for a time of prayer. Otherwise, you should have a regular sexual relationship because it's good. It's good for your marriage. It's honoring to the Lord. Do these things. But when we start to take this relationship outside of its context, that's sexual immorality. And, of course, we end up with adultery, fornication, and all sorts of other things that are outside of marriage. That's sexual immorality. And it doesn't, we don't have to get like specific, is this, is this. Basically, it's any sexual conduct outside of a marriage relationship. And, and uh, the, the church here is being seduced to do this. You know, Paul in Corinthians writes to them about this issue. And he says, you Corinthians say, well, the, the, the food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Basically, they're justifying their sexual immorality because they're saying, well, you know, I get hungry, I eat food. Food is created for that and I, I satisfy the desire for food. So sexual, uh, sexual desires work the same way. If I have a sexual desire, I should just go satisfy it at the temple or satisfy it however I see fit to satisfy that need. And Paul says, no, not so. Don't you know that all other sins a man commits outside his own body, but sexual immorality is committed against the body? And God's saying that, the, the word body there is soma, and, and it's, it's meaning more, it's, it's your whole person. The body was not created for sexual immorality. 
Yes, the stomach was created for food, but the body was not created for sexual immorality. You're so much more than that. And, of course, there's exhortations all throughout the New Testament to not be like the pagans. Thessalonians tells us, don't act out in passionate lust like the pagans do, but be self-controlled, honoring God with your bodies. So sexual immorality is, is, is a, always been a problem because we take God, the way God created something and we use it for our own satisfaction or pleasure. We twist it, we take it outside of the context. And here in this world that is of, of Thyatira, you have these guilds. And if you want to work in Thyatira and you're a, a metal worker, you're part of that guild. And there's a God for that guild. And if you want to be part of it, you're going to go worship for that God. And you'll take part in the worship. And, and by the way, in temples and pagan culture, they included uh, temple prostitutes. That you could go take care of your business with a temple prostitute or whatever the case is. This woman, Jezebel, is, uh, this prophetess that's saying she's a prophet is basically teaching people that, hey, you know what, it's not a big deal. Go, go satisfy your desire. You know, God wouldn't give you this desire. He wouldn't create you with these desires for you not to, to satisfy them. Can you think of a, how this relates to our church today in, in, in our time in 2015? Do we see compromise in the church today with sexual morality? You better believe it. We see this all over the place. And in fact, we've moved past, you know, look at divorce. God has some pretty specific teachings about divorce. Now, I don't want to guilt those who have been divorced. But I do want to say that God is very specific about what is a right divorce and what is a wrong divorce. And, and that if you divorce somebody just willy-nilly and you go and remarry, you're committing adultery. What's adultery? Sexual immorality. We, we take divorce lightly in our culture and sadly in the church too. More than that, we have an issue right now in the church where the church is starting to say, hey, let's redefine marriage. The church is submitting to the culture saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, they want to love too. They want to be satisfied with their desires. Let's allow for same-sex marriage. We should endorse it. We should encourage it. I, I had a friend who I was thankful he went for me because I, I didn't have time to go, but a church down Laguna Beach held a whole um, all-day seminar, and it was all about um, an apologetic for same-sex marriage and homosexual relationships. And it was all about the whole day was devoted to why the Bible is okay with same-sex and homosexual relationships. The whole day was. And I, I, I was thankful my friend went because he came back and he brought me all the arguments and all the literature. I went through all the things. And, and listen... If you hear a teacher say in the Greek it says or in the Hebrew it says, don't just believe them. Look at the context. Our English Bibles are actually pretty good. Uh, the, only, the only time we really get into the Greek and the Hebrew is when there's subtle things going on there that we want to draw out for you. But our English Bibles are pretty good. And if you read something in context in the English Bible, you're pretty much going to get it. Us pastors, we use it mainly just for picking up on little subtleties going on there. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm reading through this argument for same-sex marriage within the church, and um, which, by the way, we would call homosexuality, we would call sexual immorality, porneia. It's, part, it's all wrapped up in there in sexual immorality. But I'm reading these arguments, and the first thing they do is go, well, the Hebrew word for, for this is detestable, and it only has to do with idol worship, which isn't true at all. So I'm going through doing this study. Oh, uh, 
well, the Greek word for this is this. Oh, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, so therefore it's okay. And it's like, wait a minute, isn't Jesus the word? Isn't John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God? The word, okay. We have the word, obviously this revelation from God to us. And, and we recognize that the word of God is true and every man is a liar. So if Jesus himself never said something specific against homosexuality, we still have the rest of the Bible to deal with. And more than that, we have in the New Testament, we do have Jesus speak about marriage. And he speaks very clearly about marriage between a man and a woman. So I think we can pretty much be satisfied that that same-sex marriage is not something the church should tolerate. Now, I recognize some of us have friends who are struggle with homosexuality or, or whatever the case is. We want them to be loved. We want them to be happy. But happiness never comes from satisfying desires. Happiness comes from knowing the Lord. That's where happiness comes from. If, if you try to say, well, if I, if I just satisfy, if I meet this desire or this need, I'll be happy. Well, you and I know, even who are heterosexual, that that, that doesn't work. First thing I did, uh, Bob and I get into a cab in Bangkok. And we're, we're driving to our hotel. First thing the cab driver does, hold up a picture with nude women all over it and said, which one do you want? And we're like, no, we're Christians. You know, and he realized, he didn't speak English, but he recognized right away that we were like angry at him for even offering this to us. And he put it down real quick and whatnot. I wish we would have spoken English because I could have had a sermon right there in the whole hour cab ride. <laughs> so, but um, but it, satisfying a need doesn't bring happiness. Satisfying a need can bring broken relationships. It can bring disease. It does the exact opposite. When we look to satisfy ourselves, what we end up with is a shipwrecked life. You see, we were created for the Lord and created to live for him, honor him, worship him, know him, and be in relationship with him. Not to just satisfy every need that we have. And, and the sad part is, is when we reduce ourselves, our beings down to a need. Like for instance, I don't see a, a homosexual person. I see a person who's tempted with homosexual acts. Okay, there's a big difference there. It's, it's not a, I, I don't think someone is identified by their, their sexual orientation. Because there's a lot more to a person than a sexual orientation. There's a lot more to a person, a much deeper person, a person who was created in the image of God, to love God, know him, and worship him. So here, the first rebuke here is for sexual immorality. The second one is for um, food sacrifice to idols. This is an interesting thing because, again, like I said at the beginning, the church is meant to be holy, pure, set apart, not to be mixed in with the common. We're not to tolerate false teaching within the church or even those who sneak into the church and start encouraging this false teaching. Food sacrifice idols. What was the, in fact, doesn't Paul talk about this? He does in Corinthians. But what Paul says in Corinthians in chapter 6 is, is he's laying out his argument. He says, look, I know and you may have knowledge that these gods, these idols are, are not real gods. These idols are, are fake gods. In fact, there's many gods and many lords. But, not, but we worship the one God, the true God, the actual living God. These other gods are, they're, they're idols made to look like men. In fact, I was just in a space where there are tons of idols and uh, it was, it was kind of interesting. We were outside, we were in the Imperial Palace. We had two days to kill in Bangkok while we were there. 
So we went and visited the imperial palace, and one of the big things is there's a, a, a Buddha, a jade Buddha. And it's real famous. It's very old, and they fought wars over this jade Buddha. So Thailand has the jade Buddha. And before, we were kind of walking around this, this temple area, and there's umbrellas set up all around the area, and it says, the Buddha for respecting, not for furniture. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. They've got to tell people to respect the Buddha. Don't sit on him. <laughs> I was like, man, my, I don't have to defend my God. He, he's going to do it himself. My God's a living God. He's not going to allow himself to be disrespected forever. He's going to judge. It's only an act of mercy and kindness that God doesn't judge right now. But uh, the Buddha for respecting, not for furniture. And we were walking around. I took this picture because there are these little pots with flowers in them. And, you know, there's this grand temple and all this decoration, all this sort of stuff. But I noticed people taking pictures of these flowers. And I, I took a picture of the flower and the Bob, Pastor Bob said to me, he's like, you know, I just was thinking uh, when Jesus says Solomon in all of his glory was an adorned like the flowers of the field. <laughs> We're in all this like awesome, you know, architecture by man and everything's adorned and decorated, but everybody's taking pictures of the flower. You know, what a beautiful flower. <laughs> and uh, so true. But, but God is not, we recognize that there's no real Buddha idol, that he has no power. Buddha's dead. In fact, they have his fingers somewhere. I can't remember where that is. But he's dead. He, he succumbed to death. There's only one who, who could conquer death, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul argues that these idols are, we recognize that they're made by man, but he says, that, but knowledge puffs up. Love is what's better. Don't cause your brother to sin by eating these food that are, this food that is offered to idols. Because some, of, some other brothers, you may know, you may have this knowledge, this gnosis that, that this, this is just an idol made by man. But you have a brother who's come out of idolatry. And he still, when he eats that food or whatever, he thinks about how it was offered to this idol. And he's still held captive or that can be a, a stumbling point to your brother. And cause him to sin. So be really careful, Corinthians, with how you exercise your freedom in Christ. And actually what Paul says is, so, so don't do it. It's interesting though in the book of Acts, if you go to chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem council meets and the, the, the subject matter is this whole Gentile church. And the, the, Paul goes to the Jews, uh, the Jewish church in, or the church in Jerusalem. And he meets with the apostles. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, they, they come to a decision about how to work with the Gentiles and what rules to put on them and what not. Because one of the things is, well, we're saved by grace. And this is what the, the conclusion is. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to back up to verse 20, 20, yeah, or 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So I, I just want to make sure that you understand. This is something from the Lord, not just for man. The Holy Spirit and us. Um, <clears throat> to abstain from what was, has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. That was the letter that the Apostle Paul brought to the Gentile churches. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us that you abstain from these things. Sexual immorality, food sacrifice to, offered to idols, and uh, animals that have been strangled and from blood and sexual immorality. So 
the Jerusalem church early on says, yeah, let's make sure we tell the Gentile church because they're coming out of this paganism, this idolatry, and we want to make sure that they don't involve themselves in that. But you see, in Thyatira, they have an issue. If they're going to be able to support their livelihood, if they're going to be able to earn money, they've got to be part of these guilds. And these guilds require idolatry. <laughs> Interesting how Jesus taught us. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures in this, on this earth. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's false teaching in the church today that says, hey, you know, if you're a Christian, you should be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You know, you should have all this, this money and all this sort of thing. Interesting how these, these, these prosperity teachers completely ignore Jesus' teaching about prosperity. We're, we're not living for this kingdom here. We're not living for a big house. We're not living for lots of money in the bank. We're not living for fancy cars. We're living to share the gospel on this earth, to reconcile a lost and dying humanity to the Lord. That's what we're living for. And so, so here we have this food sacrifice to idols. Think about things today in our culture that might be a food sacrifice to idols that's crept into the church. You know, this might be offensive to some of you, but have you ever thought about yoga? I can think of no, <laughs> it is so clear that yoga is idolatry, but the church in America doesn't see it that way. When I went to uh, Nepal for the first time, a Hindu nation, we were driving by this open field and two days prior to the earthquake, they had had a guru come in from India. You know what the guru does? He teaches yoga. He's out there teaching yoga. That's what, and, and thousands of people flocked to this field to be with this guru and they paid big bucks to, to, to do yoga with this guru. And I asked Saji, I said, Saji, let me ask you something. In the United States, um, we tend to look at yoga as something you go to a gym and do, and it has no spiritual background at all. It's just totally physical. What are your thoughts on that? And he says, that's crazy. Why would anybody ever do yoga? It's worship of false gods. These positions. Now, this again goes to one of those things where you and I recognize that these Hindu gods are not real. These 30 million whatever gods are not real. But the fact is, is, there are people in this, in this world that consider these gods to be real. And when they see you doing these positions and practicing them, they see it as worship to their gods. They're false gods. And you're like, Pastor Dave, are you telling me i got to give up yoga? No, I'm not telling you that. But maybe Jesus is. <laughs> That's how I'm dodging the bullet. <laughs> but think about these things. Food sacrifice, how are you or I involving ourselves in idolatry in this world? I think we should be wise about that in the, as the church. Not to, not to intermix. You're supposed to be set apart. Holy. That's the problem with Thyatira. They're, they're no longer set apart because they're tolerating the common things. And you know what the fact is? The common things are easier to live with in this world and this life. Smyrna, that church is undergoing great persecution because they won't involve themselves in the common things. Remember they're poor, but Jesus said, but you're rich. They're suffering, and, and Jesus told, hey, you know what? You're going to suffer more for 10 days. But do this. Don't lose, lose sight of me. Continue on. So we need to watch out for sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols, things offered to idols we don't want any part of. I gave her time to repent. Notice how Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of sexual immorality. Interesting that 
Jesus is saying like, hey, I've given her time. I want her to repent. Isn't that amazing about God that here you have a person, a wolf in sheep's clothing in the church, this person claiming to be a prophetess who's leading people astray and Jesus is saying, I want her to repent. His goal is not that she, he would kill her, not that he would destroy her, not that she would go to hell, but that she would repent, but she won't do it. Sad how sometimes we see the grace and mercy of God and the long-suffering of God as the right to do something. Well, God's not judging us, so let's keep doing it. we got to look to God's word and, and repent of things when he brings them up. Jezebel is interesting because uh, we see her as a type in later on in the book of Revelation. We're going to see this, this church who rides on the dragon, this woman, Babel, uh, the, this woman who rides on the dragon, this prostitute. And it's definitely representing a church. Uh, in the tribulation period. And here Jesus says that he's going to throw her onto a sick bed and, uh, and, and those who commit adultery with her, and I will throw them into great tribulation. And this is absolutely, to me, speaking of the great tribulation, that seven-year period. And so if you wanted to argue that the church is here during the tribulation, this is your argument right here. The church uh, will be, there, or maybe a portion of the church, a compromised church will be here during the tribulation period. They'll be left here. They're not going to be caught up with the rest of the believers on that great day when the Lord takes us uh, and uh, begins his day of wrath on the, on the people of earth. This church will be left here because they're not repenting. Interesting how in the church of Philadelphia, there's a promise to them, and I'm just going to uh, quickly share that in, in chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple uh, of my God. Never shall he go out. And I will write on him the new name of the city. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped the wrong place. Um, oh, sorry, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Uh, and so here in the church of Philadelphia, they get a promise. Hey, because you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial, this judgment upon the whole world. Again, reference to the great tribulation. So... Yes, I do believe part of the church will be here during the tribulation, but it's the part of the church that refuses to repent. And we see her as the, the prostitute riding on the dragon later on in the book of Revelation. She's a compromised apostate church. She's turned away from the truth. She's accepting all sorts of things. So I do think we need to be fearful of this and recognize when Christ speaks, it's for our good and it's for us to be with him in relationship with him. In closing, let's, uh, let's just hit up this last portion here. Um, so Christ acknowledges those who haven't um, learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Look, let's look at, this is the only church with, uh, with two exhortations to, and rewards. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, if you'll turn to Psalm 2, I just want to bring your attention to this one verse, and then we'll look at the end of Revelation. Psalm 2 is an interesting psalm. It's a, a psalm between the Trinity. It's this conversation of the Trinity, and uh, it's, it's kind of, it's a cool psalm. But this is what God, the Father says to the Son in Psalm 2 and verse... Um, Verse 9, actually I'll go to verse 8. 
Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. So the father tells the son that, hey, ask of me and I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you this rod of iron to rule the earth. And then if we go to the end of Revelation, chapter, we'll go to chapter 19, right before the thousand-year reign. And um, I'm just going to read a, a short part here. Go to verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, chapter 19, verse, I didn't give a verse for this, right? No, okay. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here at the end of Revelation, right before the millennial reign is, the thousand year reign of Christ is established, we see Jesus descending with the armies of heaven. Well, who, who is, who's composed that? Well, the church is a part of that. And here's the promise to Thyatira that the one who overcomes, I'm going to give you authority. You're going to rule with me with a rod of iron. Well, what does a rod of iron mean? Does it mean that God's just going to go around breaking, busting heads and that sort of No, I, I think what it's saying is that God will force his rule into effect. That's what's going to happen. God is... Jesus Christ is going to establish his rule and he's going to force his enemies into submission at that point in time. And, of course, we, we see the thousand-year reign of Christ established at that point in time. And, and we'll get to that eventually at the end of Revelation. But the promise for the overcomer is that you get to reign with him. And you might see yourself and go, oh, I don't think I'd, I'm a really great reigning material. I feel like I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of like the unfinished product. Well, that's, that's true. But Jesus will conform you to his likeness and he's going to bring you back to reign with him. Now there's one other promise here. And I will give him the morning star. Um, <clears throat> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The morning star, Jesus is referred to the morning, as the morning star early on in the, the Old Testament. It's one of the prophecies given to Israel that he's the morning star. In fact, Balaam is the one who prophesies this truth about Jesus Christ, that he's the morning star coming. And we don't have time to go back and read it right now. But it's amazing that what the promise is here for the church in Thyatira is that you reign with Christ and you have relationship with him. The, the, the one who conquers, the one who doesn't succumb, compromise, the one who remains set apart and holy is, is the one who's going to reign with him and have that relationship with him. It's an awesome promise. And amazing that Jesus gives this promise to a church that is compromised. He's saying, don't go that way. Turn back, repent, go this way. Because if you conquer, you'll be with me. I love the fact that the gospel, that Jesus Christ loves us so much and you see his heart for us, that his desire 
is that you do reign with him and that you have a relationship with him. That's God's desire. So the question is, what areas of your life have you compromised? What, what are the areas that you've, you've allowed to be common and not set apart and holy to him? How have you intermixed with idols? Is there sexual immorality in your life? What is the area you need to repent of? Because I'll tell you right now, if you read the word church or Thyatira and you say them, you miss out on applying the scriptures to your own life. I'll tell you right now, if we talk about sexual immorality and you're like, yeah, I got to deal with that. If we talk about food sacrifice to idols or giving yourselves over to some idolatry and you're like, does he know about this? Does the pastor know about this? I feel sweaty. What's going on here? This is your opportunity to repent and turn back to the Lord. Interesting that the word repent, it's not something in forethought. It's something in afterthought. It's a change of consciousness after you think about something. Once you're confronted with the will of God and you go, oh, yeah, I need to turn from the sin. I've been allowing the sin in my life. It's been ongoing. It's, it's even holding me. It's, it's got me chained down. I need to repent, turn back towards the Lord. I want to encourage you to, that, to do that tonight. Don't allow yourself to remain compromised, but rather be set apart. Let Jesus Christ wash you and make you clean. That's his promise for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. And um, Lord, forgive me for being long-winded. And Lord, I... Love your word. And we just pray, God, that uh, you would apply it now to our hearts and our minds, Lord. God, if there is something in conflict with your will in us, Lord, whether it's a thought, an action, Lord, a relationship, we just ask for you to help us repent and be clean of these things, Lord. Be the Lord of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for sin. We, we desire to rule with you and have that relationship with you. You're an awesome God. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.